0: This is Becky.
1: And this is Jen. And it's Too Close to Home, part two of the... Aliska
0: Axe murders. Oh, Dun, dun,
1: dun!
0: dun. <laughs> we're going to go over suspects today. We're going to finish the inquest, and then we're going to go into the suspects. And I am so excited to get to one. So, I'm going to waste no time and start. You know what we say.
1: I'm so excited to talk about these murders. So excited!
0: <laughs> so, Dr. Kart Kluber. Oh, my. This this whole episode doesn't go like this. Dr. Clark Cooper (laughs) was the third witness. Cooper was the first physician to enter the Moore home after the murders. Cooper testified that he was called to the Moore home at approximately 8.15 on the morning of June 10th, when Harry Horton entered his office and said, come with me. Come
1: with me. (laughs) (laughs) According to Cooper. When are he you asked, doing Enrique Iglesias? No. Which one Tupac. is that? Tupac. Oh, Tupac. Come <laughs> with me. Oh, yeah. Help Come me. with me. God. <laughs> I was like, are you singing a love song? No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I only choose Mariah for those. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, according to Cooper, when he asked
0: Horton why, Horton appeared extremely frightened and replied, Joan Warren, all his family, were murdered in bed. Cooper, accompanying Horton to the house, waited outside while Horton retrieved the keys from the Peckhams. When he returned, Cooper, Horton, Dr. Hugh, and the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Irving, entered the home together. They got the whole gaggle of guys.
1: They brought the minister? I guess The fuck the minister's up.
0: gonna do? You know, they had, like, multiple jobs back then. Oh, yeah. I'm the sheriff, the priest, the coroner. Sometimes it's still like that, though. I mean, you just did about a little town, and there's probably people there that do multiple jobs. Oh,
1: oh, absolutely, and that's
0: today's time.
1: There's a um in the town we lived in when we met. Like the uh, building inspector was also the coroner. See, exactly. And that motherfucker had no. He expected bodies and buildings. Experience, Becky. He ran for the position. You can run with no medical experience. Oh, that's Scary. scary. And then like, we had some murders happen. Um, and they ended up doing, like, a small morgue next to, <laughs> and it was out back behind the sheriff's office, and we had a building where, like, they would do training, and then the other half of it had exercise equipment, and then next to it looked like a, you know, those big freezers and restaurants, I like, can't. standalone ones? It looked just like that, and it was just out there. Makes you really hopeful.
0: Okay, I'm... Sorry. Don't know what to say about that <laughs> other than moving on. Because <laughs> the judgment inside of me
1: is furious. Yeah.
0: hmm According to Cooper, <laughs> the group stepped into the dining room and then into the first floor bedroom. All we could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the cover with blood on the pillows. And I went over and lifted the covers. And saw what I supposed was a body. Some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all. Neither did any of the people. The others then there that were with me. And we merely saw that they were dead. And that there were only two in the bed. And then we stepped out into the parlor. I had to take a lot of the like testimony that you could find of them out. Because it was so hard to like understand what they're... You know what I
1: mean? They like wanted were... to make us sound really,
0: like, classy. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what'd they say? I have to read, like, five times. <laughs> when they reached the top of the stairs, a lamp sat on the floor. Horton moved the lamp out of the way, and they continued into the bedroom. The lamp was setting at the foot of the bed in our way. So Hank sat it to one side, allows us to pass up. And Hank was ahead of me, and he walked around to the corner to left-hand side of the bed, and then turned the cover back and said, Here's Joe. And I merely glanced over the first time as I came up and saw Mr. and Mrs. Moore were both dead. And I immediately went to the south room and left the other people with them. I do not know whether any of them came with me to the south room, but I left plenty of them in the north room. And then I went to the south room. And then we began to count the children. You see what I'm talking about? It's hard to like, <laughs> yeah. listen to. Like, wait, what, 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 what? When qu- questioned about the conditions of the body, Cooper admitted he did not touch the corpses. The bedding was pretty stiff at the head, And the blood and the brains on the pillow were, well, they had contracted, as it does when killed. They'll dry. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect jelly at that time. And the clots, the blood clots, they were dry. He estimated that the moors and the stillingers had been dead at least five to six hours. Cooper also testified that he smelled no unusual aseptic odor in the house and that it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered after they were murdered. I saw no clothes were sticking to any of the wounds. And my superficial examination—neither did I see any clothing that had holes in it. I mean, in any of the sheets or pillows, that nothing had a hole in it.
1: I was like, "What the?" I had to leave that one in there because I was like, "What the fuck is that?" I don't like. I guess you means, can tell this is his first time. Well, like this shit don't happen <laughs> in this town. He's like, "I, I can't. I didn't even. I didn't even touch the shit. <laughs> I didn't even touch it." I don't all even I like know who thing, was in there. I know where I was. <laughs> I know where I was and what I was doing and that was not touching shit. And in my scientific knowledge, <laughs> I know that when brains left out, dry up. And I know there was no holes in it, the sheets on the heads. one. They were, she was impeccable. She kept all those <laughs> sheets mended and on point. <laughs> all I could think
0: later was maybe he meant they knew he knew that they didn't cover them and then hit them because there was no holes in the sheets. Oh yeah, I was like, why do they need holes? That's all I could come up with later because I was like, like holes?
1: <laughs> like like are ghost? they ghosts or like <laughs> we're like we can't see each other while we make babies? <laughs> you know they used to do that. And Did, then, what? No, like where they there was like a sheet up.
0: What movie was I watch? I don't know. I died. I was just guesstimating. I'll come back to that. <laughs> wait, maybe that was The Handmaiden's (laughs) Tale. Oh, God.
1: No, they didn't have a sheet in that one.
0: Whenever she 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 went to the doctor. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse Moore, the fourth witness. Miss Moore was the wife of Josiah's brother, Ross, and took the phone call from Miss Peckham. She basically said, I don't know shit about, I don't know nothing. All I know is I took that phone call. Yeah. Peace. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
1: That was all. (laughs)
0: Next was the fifth witness, Mr., I'm sorry, Dr. Williams. He was the physician that actually examined the bodies of the murder victims. Williams was the second physician to enter the home, and Williams testified that Ed Seeley, that's weirdo employee, mm-hmm. stopped him on the street of the morning of the 10th and told him uh, the doctor was wanted at the Moore home for examination there. And I feel like, really, Ed, they just sent you to go find a doctor to come back to a murder scene? Okay, cool story, bro. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't he went on sound- to Yeah. Went on to say that he arrived at the house. Doctor Cooper and another party were coming out onto the porch, and he testified that he saw in the adults and children's rooms exactly what Doctor Cooper had said. Uh, he literally said it all again, but I wasn't going to read it a second time. <laughs> when he entered the downstairs bedroom, Williams said he saw two girls. From their appearance, one was a big woman and one was a little girl. And that the God, girl, they got to
1: come out like that. I, that's what they I said. Got to come them, for. I, her? <laughs> Damn y'all! She already got fucking jacked up and dead, and not then, even at her own damn house. And then jacked off to bacon grease, and you got to be like, one was big and one was little. Like that one over there, she's seen a slab of bacon or two. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt like he was saying. Huh. They probably were. It sounds like they're talking about us. One was big, one was little. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs>
0: And that that girl out to the outside of the bed next to the east side, that wherein you know her head facing to the north, she had evidently moved after being after being struck, or had been moved. The blood was all scattered all over the pillows. Well, she
1: ain't a snake, she ain't like. I'm like the, this terrible police work. I am not a police officer, but I'll have to agree with you. That is some terrible policing, and we could have done a better job. We could tell they were struck with an object because there was, like, blood,
0: like, everywhere, like, scattered on the pillows and stuff, so. I'm pretty sure they were dead. <laughs> <laughs> they were definitely dead. Well, so we thought. We didn't touch them, though. But, I mean, they had she to might
1: have moved. I don't know. <laughs>
0: like, all right, top notch. <laughs> Apparently, she'd been struck on the head. <laughs> what? News flash. <laughs> yeah. Squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one-third of the way, and a left hand was thrown back was sticking up below the pillow and her head was all beaten in. And I took particular attention to an axe wound and that the edge had come out of the forehead so that I could see a sharp edge. Well, the top and the side of the head. And the little girl, the back of her head was all beaten in. I did not recognize either one of them little girls. The
1: little girl on the front of the bed. Well, I mean, ain't nobody recognizing their faces are beaten. Keep in mind, this is direct transcripts, okay? Oh my God, this is the best. I
0: thought the one looked familiar, but she was so mutilated that I wasn't able to identify her at the time. And I think over the girl to the back of the bed, she had a little boy's gray coat. It was it was all thrown over her head. And there was clothing, some clothing, some underwear. And notice that some under the bed and also the dress is hanging up, laying or hanging up on the wall or on the foot of the bed. I forget which.
1: <laughs> it's not like this is important or anything. But there was no blood on it.
0: In question about the possibility of sexual assault on any of the victims, Williams responded to the negative. I looked to see if there was any possible, you know, might have been attempted intercourse or rape or something, but I didn't notice any. That's literally what he said. Literally.
1: I didn't notice any? Didn't notice any. <laughs> At this point, I mean, I don't know if he would have noticed if it, there had been any. I don't think he would
0: have. <laughs> no. Edward Landers was the sixth sixth witness. The coroner then called Ed Landers to the stand. Mr. Landers was visiting his mother for the summer and was staying just a few houses from the moors. Landers testified that he'd went to bed shortly after 9 p.m. Sunday night. Shortly before he fell asleep, however, he said he heard a sound that impressed him. And it sounded like one boy hooting for another boy on the outside somewhere.
1: Because we know how boys hoot.
0: Well, all I can think about is, you know, like, <laughs> how people will be like, ca, ca, to get someone's attention, yeah. like, the coast is clear. Or, like, whenever the two... cops are coming, hoo doo! Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, was there a killer in the barn watching and someone in the attic and then someone made a noise that it's clear, they're all in bed, you can come down, and then they went and he let it in and then the two of them went at it? You see my little armchair detective line?
1: Oh. Yeah, that's
0: what I was thinking.
1: I, I be bet wrong. you. My thought. I agree with that. They came out of that. One killed the parents upstairs. Probably the other the one killed the kids downstairs. And then they met in the other bedroom and were like, cung, cung. You're right. With the minus the cung, cung. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to do some sound effects.
0: Really wanted to bring it home to you guys. Get a visual. <laughs> what
1: was
0: that sound you made?
1: <laughs> ah, that's better
0: that's more appropriate <laughs> according to Landers this sound occurred at regular intervals but didn't connect it with anything and fell asleep shortly thereafter so
1: you gonna hear some strange ass hooty hoos out there <laughs> over and over and he's just like weird I've never heard a species of owl like that like <laughs> that Oh well, never, th- never thy mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never thy mind. That's exactly what he would say. Too. <laughs> I've got to get up at five a.m. to feed these fucking chickens <laughs> and give her that fucking hooty who out there. Damn hooty who! Keep me awake. again.
0: <laughs> when pressed for a time, Landers. Later settled on that it was approximately 11 p.m. Oh, okay. <laughs> two hours difference. But I guess they probably didn't have watches like us just hanging about. Also, they
1: probably weren't precise. Like, you know, people are all manually doing it. When was the moment that we all were like, okay, we got to rely on computers because ain't nobody on the same page. Nobody. <laughs> it's two o'clock. Nah, man, it's one. <laughs> exactly. They He's probably like, I don't know what time it was. The sundial was down. Yeah. <laughs> was broke. Okay. Well, the sun was down. The sun died. Well, did they do off the moon dial? I don't know. Zachariah ran over (laughs) it with his fucking wagon the other day. Let me get back on track.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He later testified further testified that although he didn't think anything of it at the time, the next morning when he heard about the murders, it occurred to him it's actually been a woman moaning for help.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> you know, in hindsight, they say it's 2020. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't a hootie owl. Maybe was it wasn't. Maybe it was someone calling for help. Help. Goddamn owls. He's <laughs> stabbing me in the face. What the fuck are they even talking <laughs> Shut up, you damn bird. <laughs> He got into the poppy seat, so he was like, maybe I'm just hearing shit. You know what? I'm just going to take some more of this cough syrup made with pure morphine. (laughs) I wish when I had a cough, they'd give me some shit like that to really (laughs) kick it out of my system. Help me get a good night rest. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to need to be incapacitated for at least 12 hours. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your time. See you tomorrow. (laughs) The
0: only strangers Landers admitted, admitted to seeing in the area of the Moore home or some wallpaper cleaners that had stopped by his mother's place at approximately 10.15 Saturday night. I don't know why you would go around at 10.15 at night asking to clean somebody's wallpaper. But
1: I, mean, I did not live in the times. Was it like the homeless people that try to clean your windshields? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Man, I just need. I do it for the low, low price of $20. I, do I just need you. some cough syrup.
0: <laughs> Landers could shed no light on what time the Moors may have retired for the evening and was dismissed. Ross Moore was the seventh witness. That was Josiah's brother and the first person to enter. Basically told the same story, that he came over there at 8.15. Then Miss Peckham had called him after nobody was there, had woke up and done their chores. Ross went over to Joe's store, spoke with Ed Seeley, who said, no, Joe hadn't been in. According to Ross, he then went over to the house, checked the barn to see if Joe's Okay, I don't know what that was supposed to say. Because it says, according to Ross, he went over to the house and checked the barn to see if Joe's team was still there. (laughs) Apparently,
1: autocorrect. Oh, autocorrect.
0: Yeah. I don't think Josiah had a team out back in his barn, but whatever. We'll skip right past that. (laughs) He and Miss Peckham then tried getting in. He used the key. Ross said he entered the parlor. Noted. Same thing we already talked about. That was it. Eighth witness, Josiah Moore's other brother, Fenwick Moore. Fenwick lived in Red Oak. Fenwick testified
1: he didn't know much about Joe's business affair and had no idea who'd want him dead.
0: And that was the end of his testimony.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know shit. I ain't seen shit. I don't know why he's dead. Thank you. I don't even live in Velisca. I'm out. I'm out.
0: <laughs> Next was Marshall Hank Horton. He spent very little time on the stand. He only confirmed that he was approached by Seeley to go over there. Once he entered the house and seen the body, he immediately went and got the doctors. He also...
1: Shit, this is above my pay grade.
0: (laughs) He also mentioned there were no unusual odors. Many of them mentioned there was no unusual odors in the home. No antiseptic smells. I don't know
1: what the hell that's all about. Like, did they think he was trying to clean? And then back in the days, how did they... What did they use? I have no idea what they mean by antiseptic at all. I was just like,
0: okay, I'll say that a lot. <laughs> Next, they interviewed Josiah's nephew and brother, Lee Van Gilder and Harry Moore. Uh, Van Gilder admitted that he'd spoken to Joe briefly on Sunday, but he could shed no whereabouts on um his father. Although Harry was later questioned about Moyer and Van Gilder, like his other brothers, he had almost no knowledge of Joe's personal business affairs. I don't even know why they included all this.
1: I mean, you gotta get all the suspects, you know, I guess. Yeah. This guy don't know no shit. This guy don't know no shit. (laughs) Nobody knows
0: nothing. Next, they called Blanche and Joseph Stillinger. That was the sister and the father of Lena and Ina Stillinger. The coroner called Blanche. Uh, Blanche was the eldest of the Stillinger children and sister to the victims. According to Blanche, Joe Moore had called the Stillinger house at 6 p.m. on Sunday and asked to speak to the mother. When he told them that the mother was outside, she went on to say... Going to the, the girls were going to the church with the family and they didn't want to have to walk back to their grandmothers in the dark. He then asked if they would be okay if they stayed. Blanche testified that she told Mr. Moore her parents are out, but she's sure it'll be fine. Um, Blanche was excused. The father said the same thing. Um he asked if they asked him if he knew who would have committed the crime. He said he does not know. Um said that, yes, they had said they could stay over there, and that was about it, and that they tried to phone the house three different times before the rude-ass operator said your kids are dead. <laughs> there
1: ain't nobody at that house they all dead.
0: <laughs> Charles Moore was the last um, one. Charles Moore was one of Josiah's brothers. Uh, he could not identify the axe believed to be the murder weapon as Joe's, but did admit that Joe kept one in the coal shed. Charles also testified that he believed it was a habit for Joe to lock up the house and the inside before they went to sleep. So he's like, he usually locks. Like we all do. Most of us do. Yeah. Um, I went there several mornings after the team to go in the country. Wait, hold on.
1: They unlocked the door, right, that morning. Then how did they leave? How did the killer leave?
0: Because they said what was habit was, you had those old, like, skeleton keys almost, yeah. and you locked from the inside and the outside. So when they would lock the last door, they would just leave the key in the lock.
1: Oh. So
0: when the guy left, he took the key out, took it with him, and then locked all the doors when he left, is what they think happened. Oh. So he wasn't totally crazy. Um, he said when he would go over there, that the doors were always locked, and he would have to wait for someone to come and open the door. So he, another theory that someone was in the attic and mm-hmm. then came down. And there was someone in the barn. <laughs> 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 <Hoody-hoo>. <laughs> so the first of three suspects that I'm gonna go over who are the most believed is the first one is Frank Jones. Frank Jones is the one where they sniffed the dog sniffed the axe and they stopped outside of his house. He was a prominent Vallisca resident and he was an Iowa State Senator.
1: They well, believe we he know was- serial killers love, love politics. politics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Josiah Moore worked for Frank Jones at the Jones store for several years until he opened his own company in 1908. According to Velisca residents, Jones was extremely upset that Moore left his employee and that he took the John Deere franchise with him. So he worked for Frank Jones and he took that John Deere company with him Mm. and cost him a lot of money. Rumor was that Josiah also had an affair with Frank Jones' daughter-in-law. So Josiah took the company and was banging his son's wife. That's an affront. It said that the daughter-in-law was very beautiful and that the son was not so much. <laughs> and that uh, they think she just married him for the money. Okay. So that there was a lot of a lot of people had rumors about Josiah and her talking on the phone all the time. Because, you know, the operators
1: could listen in on that. Oh, show. yeah. To be an operator in that time. Would be the best.
0: I got the tea, baby. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, I want to be an operator. <laughs> it's a position open. I'll be, do me, it. me, 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 me. me. <laughs>
1: It's like Facebook of the times. Yeah. No wonder why that bitch was like, they all dead, girl. (laughs) And then she's like, oh, shit, that was their mom. (laughs) Whoops.
0: So that further fanned the flames between them. Detective Walkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Frank and his son Albert of hiring William Mansford to kill Joe. So back in the day, the police departments were so small they would hire outside uh agencies with little gumshoe detectives to come in and try to help them like solve Pinkney it. Pinkney detectives. Yeah. So that's how you're gonna hear or in the next one. Sorry, not Pinkney. The next one's also some agency detective, and that's why. Uh neither Jones was ever ar- arrested and both denied any connection to the murders. William Mansfield of Blue Island, Illinois, was the prime suspect, according to the Burns Detective Agency. Wilkerson investigated the murder of the Moore family. He claimed Mansfield was a cocaine fiend and a serial killer.
1: <laughs> I mean, everybody was in those days. The cocaine part, at least.
0: Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his own wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914. Holy shit. So... after the Velasca axe murders. Uh... You're going to hear about a bunch of it's different axe patterns, murders.
1: And I saw it.
0: Well, you're going to hear about a bunch of axe murders.
1: But remember. It was the time and people loved them. People yeah. loved a good old axe. And it was the, the convenient weapon. Everybody had an axe. That's what they did. Mm-hmm. Chopping their wood. Like they had the axe man of New Orleans. Chopping chickens you heads off. and Lizzie Borden with her mm-hmm. axe.
0: So although it seems like a pattern, it's also at the same time like, well, that's how like everybody got killed. It was
1: like then. the murder weapon of choice at the time. Yeah. It's very in vogue.
0: Very, very. <laughs> he also believed he was guilty of the Axe murders in Paloma, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders, and the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. Kind of suspicious, though, that his family was killed in the same manner.
1: Either has something to do with it or he took inspiration.
0: One of the two. Wilkerson claimed all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner. Manner indicating the same man committed them. Wilkerson said that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of those places on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and mirrors in the home were covered. Also, a burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed. And a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. So that is, what you said, a pattern. So that does make it a little bit more like, okay, so it wasn't just the next murder. You had all this other shit in.
1: Yeah. All uh, these signatures of things that could implicate that you might have done it. This part
0: I feel like somebody threw into some of this research just because they thought it was cute. Because it says in each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves. I'm not sure that they knew to do that back then. No. Wilkerson believe this was strong evidence that Mansfield did it and wore gloves because Mansfield did have his fingerprints on file at the federal prison in Leavenworth where he had served time previously. And they were getting into it. So, okay, maybe he was just ahead of his time and I was just being a hater. Yeah,
1: <laughs> My bad. <laughs>
0: I'll give props where they do. Wilkerson even convinced a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916 and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for lack of ex- evidence and later won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. Wilkerson believed the pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield be- release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. So the fact that the whole thing that got him off was one little piece of paper that they made up and said was a. I'm sorry, I, look at me jumping to conclusions. I said they made up one little piece of paper they were able to provide that says he was at work. How easily could that shipment made up? And you were supposedly hired by the state center. You mean to yeah. tell me he don't got people that could do that for you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But the next guy.
1: They have so many likely sp- suspects though. This next one is. In the movie, I in the really horror movie, um, they had the guy who killed was the, the preacher. From the revival they had went to. This is, is that who the I'm guy? about to talk about. Ah, <laughs> oh,
0: yes! <laughs> oh, and let me just show you so you can tell me a picture of him. He is fucking creepy.
1: Oh, cause so in the movie, you remember that movie, The People Under the Stairs? Mm-hmm. And the, there was the one named Flea and he had his tongue cut off. That actor played the killer in the Basilica x murders movie. The guy on the left is fucking creepy. That's uh, him and his wife.
0: That's the Reverend Kelly.
1: And he's shorter than her? Yeah, he, yeah, he was only
0: like 5'1", 5'2", and 110 pounds. Creepy as hell, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: This leads us to others adamantly insist was Reverend George Kelly, who was the culprit. Reverend Kelly was a traveling preacher. I don't know if this... um You have to tell me if the movie goes <laughs> off this correctly. Kelly and his wife settled in Macedonia, Iowa, 1912, after several years of traveling, preaching in the Midwest. In 1917, uh, after the murders, in 1917 is when Kelly was arrested and charged with the murder of only one of the Velisca Axe murder victims. Only one. So Kelly was invited to attend those Children's Day services at Mm -hmm. the Presbyterian Church on the 9th. He was a tiny, nervous, bird-like man, and he sat right across from Mr. Moore and watched the event watched his kids up there everything his present in presence in Velisca on the night of the murders and his subsequent sub, subsequent, subsequent there we go <laughs> departure in the morning early morning hours of June 10th made him a prime suspect so the morning after the murders reverend kelly left on the number 5 train at 519 3 hours before the murders were discovered there was a couple who said that He started talking about the murders on the train, but there's no way he would have known about them
1: if he had left before they were discovered.
0: But then the couple recanted and were like, well, maybe it was on that day we seen him and he was talking about it. Maybe it wasn't. So they weren't exactly a reliable source. During the next week, he became obsessed with the murders. Having been in Villisca, Sunday night seemed to like bind him to the whore. His obsession resulted in him writing these long rambling letters about the murder. He even wrote to state. state and local investigators, private detectives, relatives of the victims. And he came back two weeks later to preach again. He arranged to stay over on Monday and persuaded that Reverend Ewing that went to the murder house before when you were like, why would you bring preachers in there? Well, he got him to take him back to the house. As luck would have it, though, there were investigators at the house at the time. So Kelly showed up and there was like, "Uh, why why you want to come see this house? Within a month, his letter started to get attention, especially from the investigators. Tom O'Leary, representing the Hayes Detective Agency, so we've got mm-hmm. another one, was particularly suspicious of Preacher Kelly. Tom wrote a coy, flattering letter asking Kelly for details about what happened that Sunday night. Reverend Kelly wrote him back and several others with details that seemed either incriminating or completely made up. He claimed that he'd been out walking and he heard the thud of an axe. He claimed the killer had been disturbed by a couple walking by and had stepped out onto the porch until they passed. He then said, Miss Moore had reared up in the bed before the killer struck. Like he was like very all over in these letters. Mm -hmm. They didn't even make sense. Like I heard a thud and then there was a couple and they interrupted them and then the killer came out on the porch and then, yeah. On a walk. And how did you know? So why anybody was like, totally did it. I would have been like, fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, just discount it. But then again, he's... Like in the
1: movie, I think it was like a, a possession or something like that. They made, they did it like a religious kind of like thing. And he was after the girl, the one that was...
0: That's yeah. what they get to on here and say too. kind of, kind of. You'll, you'll... So throughout the summer and the fall of 1912, they quietly started investigating Kelly. Um, None of the investigation reached the public press, but private conferences were held and reports filed and discussed whether or not they'd have enough evidence to make an arrest. No arrests were made right then, probably because Kelly's position as a minister made it hard for people to picture him as the killer. But then if you look at a picture of him, I can picture him being a killer.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) And that's, oh, look, that's what I say. But if you look at pictures, he's like a creepy killer, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, his mental illness caused authorities uncertainty to whether he'd actually done any of this or just imagined it all. In 1914, he became a shorthand reporter after dropping out of seminary school because he wasn't paying his bills. Mm -hmm. He was a typewriter fiend and he placed an ad for a private secretary in the Omaha world. Herald. a young woman responded and was shocked when Kelly wrote her back and said she would do just fine, but she must type in the nude. So she took her letter to the pastor who turned it into the police and they had her write a few more letters back and forth to get him to say some really obscene things because then they could arrest him because that was a crime back then. So they turned it over, sent more dummy letters. His letters grew progressively more salacious. (laughs) And once they were satisfied, they went and arrested him for sending scene material through the mail. He was convicted in May of 1914 and sentenced to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. But instead, he got transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. There he went months of therapy, during which he wrote the attorney general expressing fear that he would be arrested for the Abliska Axe murder. So he just like randomly wrote, was like, they're going to get me for it. They're going to get me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, could you imagine getting that letter from insane insane Asylum? Like...
0: <laughs> well, maybe the general's a little crazy because he wrote him back.
1: Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but if it was me, I would have wrote him back. (laughs) And you're a little crazy.
0: (laughs) He wrote him back, told him you're not a suspect, and just concentrate on getting well. During the five years since 1912, authorities continued to speculate on the possibility that Kelly may have been the murderer. A grand jury member, Scott Smith, said, After the Wilkerson case collapsed, we've got to look at... This is the exact quote from a grand jury member. We've got to look at that crazy preacher over in Nebraska.
1: (laughs) Over in Nebraska.
0: (laughs) During the April, during April 1917, they conducted an extensive investigation into Kelly's possible guilt, returning an indictment and issuing a bench warrant for his arrest on April 30th, 1917. In an ironic twist, Kelly came back riding the number five train arriving at 6 a.m., the same train that
1: that he had left
0: on. on. Yep. Oh, Kelly voluntarily presented himself to the Montgomery County Sheriff Bob Dunn that afternoon. By September, when he was brought to trial, the case had four essential elements. Kelly was mentally disturbed, including a sexual obsession, a bloody T-shirt he had sent to be laundered the week after the murder, his knowledge and talk about the murder before it had even been discovered, and he had a confession. See, Kelly had been arrested and ended up confessing, But according to him, he only confessed because they beat the shit out of him. And because his celly was like, it'll be a lot easier on you if you just say you did it. Just say you did it. it." Yeah. He was specifically charged with the death of Lena Stillinger. She had been found with the pants pulled down and all of that. So that lamp that kept being found at the foot of the bed, they believed he put there so he could light up her genitalia. Why she had pulled her Mm -hmm. down to the end of the bed. They point out. That Kelly had been seen peeping in Billy Meyer's wife's bedroom just days before the murder. And he'd been in, observed in several towns prowling the streets out late at night. Mm. He also had made some specific requests that young women pose nude for him on at least three occasions. And finally, while preaching in Carroll, Iowa, less than a year after the murder, he had cajoled and pleaded with two 13-year-old girls in his parish to pose nude for him all these actions were offered by the state as evidence that Kelly entered the house, killed its occupants, pulled down the shades, covered up everything so no one could see him, mm-hmm. and then masturbated to. But that's like a lot of work just to masturbate to somebody. Yeah.
1: <laughs> everything was hard work in those days. That's true. You want you want a, a snack, well you got to go out there and kill that chicken and do all this, <laughs> pluck and, the feathers, I mean, like everything oh. was a whole ass process.
0: That's probably why everybody was so slim, because they are like, mm, not that hungry. Yeah. Like, you and know I'll know what? go gnaw on some grass out front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fuck this. <laughs> That's why they're always chewing on those long pieces of
1: <laughs> Trying to stave off the hunger until like, I get the motivation. <laughs>
0: the final leg in the state's case against Kelly was his confession. He'd been interrogated repeatedly throughout the summer, but as the trial drew new, the state officials decided on one final, all in effort to get him to confess. Late in the afternoon, they brought him into the interrogation room and confronted him with all these important people. They begin began grilling him, and this grilling would last throughout the night. All those men were big men, They and they all played the big, bad cop role with the little, tiny, squirrely-ass Kelly. Finally, they finally gave him a right break to return to his cell, and this is when his cellmate, there were two thieves in there, and they told him, from our experiences, if you just confess, it's a lot quicker and easier. But one of these criminals was actually a deputy sheriff who was undercover. And they're pretending to be a criminal telling him to confess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fucked you know up. what? I would just confess if I was you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's what they did. So he then he went in there and confessed. 7 a.m. the next morning, Kelly broke and dictated a confession. In his confession, he claimed to have difficulty sleeping the night of the murder, so he went out for a walk. While walking down the middle of the street, he saw a light in a house and two children, the Stillinger girls, getting ready for bed. He heard the Lord's voice commanding him to suffer the children to come unto me. In a trance light state, he walked to the back of the house, picked up the axe, went in the kitchen door, and proceeded to kill everyone. He stayed in the house until the first light, then let himself out the front door and left town. Armed with the evidence against Kelly, they brought him to trial on Tuesday, September 4th, 1917. The trial lasted until Wednesday, September 26th, when they turned the proceedings over to the jury. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal and was dismissed Friday, September 28, 1917. A second cursory trial was held in November of 1917, and Kelly was acquitted of all charges. Kelly's supposed confession made a mockery of law enforcement and was withdrawn before his second trial began. Kelly's trial resulted in a hung jury, and he was finally acquitted the second time. After that, Kelly moved to Kansas City, Connecticut, and finally New York, and the remaining years of his life and final resting place remain a mystery. Mm. So it's kind of like back and forth. And we got one more before we end it out. The last strong suspect was Henry Lee Moore. Was that the
1: neighbor?
0: Is that your neighbor's name?
1: No, was that the neighbor or whatever?
0: No, no, this is a rando. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Was that your neighbor? (laughs) That's your neighbor's name?
1: The odds.
0: Cool. (laughs) (laughs) McClowery, a federal officer assigned to the Velisca case, actually announced in May of 1913 that he solved not only the Velisca murders, but 22 other ones that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time. The officer's theory was that Henry Moore, no relationship to Josiah Moore, was the serial killer responsible for all the crimes. Henry Moore was actually convicted of murders. He killed his mom and his grandma in Columbia, Missouri, just months before, and he killed them with an axe. He killed them because he wanted his mom's home, and so he killed his wife and his mom for inheritance. Nice. I'm sorry, not his wife and mom, his mom and grandma. I'm sorry, mom and grandma. (laughs) Too much, too many people. <laughs> All the people. Because I was like, why would he kill his wife? And then I'm like, because he didn't, dumbass. <laughs> so he wanted the grandma's house, but he had to kill the mom too. Otherwise, yeah, she like, would have got the house.
1: Like, I love you, mom, but you're going to have to go. <laughs> got to go. So in
0: 1900, Henry was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, and working as a farmhand. It is suspected that he may have fathered a child with the young daughter of the farmer. Henry was sentenced to the Kansas state prison on a forgery charge and released April 11th, 1911. So the murders in Colorado Springs that we are Colorado that we talked about earlier happened in September the same year testimony during Henry's trial indicated that he lived with his mother and grandma during the winter and the summer Mm. He left the job. So he left and took a job on the railroad. And that's what they believed that the murderer did was travel around on trains, and that's how he killed all these people all over the Midwest.
1: He could have been on there with Kelly when leaving I that know. morning. Crazy. Maybe they did it together. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they were sitting next to each other <laughs> and he <laughs> heard the story. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 Henry Lee Moore served 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled in 1949. The governor commuted his sentence... On July 30th, 1956, Henry Moore was 82 years old and had been living at the Salvation Army Center in St. Louis. There is little known where he died or where he was living. So basically, they came and they said, hey, we think he did it. This detective, he's like, and I think he did all these people. Look, he killed his mom and grandmother, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, pish posh. (laughs) And nobody ever investigated him. They did a lot of pish poshing in this. But after he went to prison the first time, that's when he got on the rails and started riding the rails. And... Mm. That is all about that, but I'm going to tell you about, this is from website I used, which was the, the Velisca Axe Murder House that is still around today. On a quiet residential street in a small town sits an old white farmhouse. On a dark evening, the absence of lights and sounds are the first indication to visitors that this house is different from the other homes that surround it. Upon closer inspection, you'll notice its doors and windows are tightly closed and covered. An outhouse in the backyard suggests that this house does not occupy a place in the 21st century, but somehow belongs in another era or another story. A weather-beaten sign hanging from a decrepit front porch warns rather than welcomes. It is the murder house. The walls still protect the identity of the murderer or murderers who bludgeoned to death the entire family of Josiah Moore and two overnight guests on June 10, 1912. Her secret continues to draw many visitors to her door. Visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Tours have been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have confirmed the presence of spirits dwelling in the home, and many have actually communicated with them. And skeptics have left believers. While several of Liska's historic buildings have been demolished, the Axe murderer House, as it is known, has been placed on the National Registry of Historic Buildings. Owners Darwin and Martha Lynn have returned the home to its original condition and hope that renewed interest in the mystery may somehow help Felisca heal her wounds and rejuvenate her economy. And that's the house we're going to go stay in.
1: Heck, yes, we are. Yes. They've left
0: it just like it was in 1912. God, we need to go so bad. So bad.
1: And- but, you know, they embraced it, you know, like uh and I'm like well it sucks let's just do what we can do that when they I was doing the Delphi murders they interviewed the tourism lady there and they're like so how has this affected your tourism she was like well you know we got a lot of things going on here da 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 like trying to talk about anything front about that she's like they're like but it's kind of synonymous with these these murders right she goes yeah it's a bit of an obstacle <laughs> 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 well i'll say damn Oh, not this! People that are running this house—they're like, "Come on, come one, come on!" Give me house. your money! Come on! <laughs> I got shirts, I got mugs, I got ghost What else could you want? And when they were like,
0: "It's four hundred twenty-eight dollars for six people, fifty dollars more, but you can go up to ten and you get the whole house," I was like, "Fuck four, yeah!" Four twenty-eight between six people—that's not even hundred bucks. Hold up, but it does have bathrooms in there, right? I don't know because they talk about the outhouse out back. And I know they say bring sleeping bags and pillows, especially if you're coming when it's cold, that it does have some heat. So it's not I don't think it has like heat, heater and air conditioning and shit. Because, like I said, they kept it original.
1: Yeah, we're going to go in the winter then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hot as hell. Well, does Iowa get real hot? Because you're thinking humidity hot. Jen. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's probably
1: like. Human hot for them. like cannot go when it's snowing and there's no heat. Oh, no, 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 no. I could do fall. I don't even know if there's electricity in the home. How am I going to charge my cellular device? (laughs) (laughs) How am I going to capture the ghosts if I have no battery charge? Exactly. Don't we know that ghosts suck up batteries? I've seen Ghost Adventures. Yep. Thank you. (laughs) You want
0: to see the house real quick?
1: Yeah. Oh, that looks eerily nice. Doesn't
0: it? Uh, I like the sign that's out front. that just straight up tells you
1: this is a murder house.
0: And I tried to uh, see in the barn out back.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take my little baby. Oh, there's board. a fireplace. Oh, oh that's see, cool. We'll we can go here in right the winter. Then. Yeah, we'll put you over there. I'll sleep on the other side of the room. One of us is going to get touched in the middle of the night. I guarantee it.
0: I'm going to sleep right beside you. <laughs> we might share a sleeping bag. <laughs> Because I'm scared, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm scared.
1: <laughs> I love ghosts.
0: <laughs> if they're nice. If what they're if they n- want to um, fuck with me? As long as it's not the murderer's ghost. Now I'm going to have to watch that movie too.
1: I'll have to find it. I think it's called the last The Villas... Uh, you know what I mean. Axe Murder.
0: Is that the guy? That's him. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he creepy as hell, son. They picked a the perfect guy.
0: Just as creepy as the real one. Yeah. He's got all right baby kids.
1: teeth it's kind of creepy
0: <laughs> that was our fun old unsolved well let's get i need Mar- you to get on it check out their site go visit their home show them some love but just don't book on the night we're going to be there
1: yeah don't book on our night thanks i mean, unless you like you want to pay some of it I mean,
0: <laughs> then we can all hang out and then you can be
1: uh guests on our podcast oh my god yes <laughs> um we're taking fees it's a thousand dollars a night i'm just kidding <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> They were like, no, nah, I ain't paying $1,000 for them bitches.
0: <laughs> me neither. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer told me I had to pay $1,000 to keep doing this podcast. I will leave today and never come back <laughs> yeah.
1: You dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, intend then. Stay safe. Keep your eye on a swivel.
0: And don't bring it so close to home.
1: De- definitely don't bring that reverend home. No. Mm. Uh-uh. No, ma'am. Lock right. them doors. I'm going to go eat some beans now. Check your attics. I want beans. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I just want some beans. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of too close to home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at too close home pod on Facebook at too close podcast on Instagram. Or if you have your own too close to home experience, shoot us your story at too to home at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.